Greetings and welcome to Let's Talk About Books, baby, where we talk with your favorite LGBTQ plus authors. I'm Anita Kelly, and my guest today is David Jackson Ambrose. Hello, David. Hi, Anita, and hi, everyone. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, thanks for being here. It's great to talk with you. It really is. Um, um, been looking forward to this. Same here. So, uh, so let's jump right in and, and talk about what you've been doing, David. Um, I, I want to get into your first published novel, which is State of the Nation. And yes. um, that was a Lambda Literary finalist when it was published in 2019. And, and I'm telling you, that is really quite a welcoming to the gay literary world. Uh, to be a, a Lambda Literary finalist. So how, how did that feel and how, how was that moving forward from that? I have to say it was pretty surreal. You know, when I uh, checked in for notifications about um, the outcome of the, of the awards, mm-hmm. I kept checking and going back in thinking that maybe I had imagined it or, or <laughs> I misread it. So I kept checking. It was very surreal Um, and a very exciting, you know, time, you know, getting to participate in the award show and being included with such a vast array of talented people um, was a very great way to to launch into the book world. Heck, yeah. You came out fighting. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a very good thing, actually, for me, because, you know, um, writing can be a very solitary uh, sort of existence. Yeah. And uh, quite honestly, I think I needed that validation to tell me that my writing was uh, significant and and impactful, because a, a lot of times there's doubt, you know, you don't know who's reading and you're just praying that you're book is getting into the hands of people that it makes uh, sense to. So it was really very significant to to have that validation right out the gate. Yeah, that's so true. It is a really it's a solitary activity. And and you don't always hear from people. You don't always receive feedback. Right. So, right. Um, you know, that that is super nice to know that, you know, what you set out to accomplish uh, was accomplished and and it it hit home like you, you had a grand slam with that one yeah. yeah yes yeah that's fantastic um so um tell us about like what's the premise of of state of the nation and and tell us about the characters well uh this probably sounds a little bit uh strange or maybe even superfluous but you know how uh, the the Seinfeld show, uh, their premise was that it was a show about nothing. Yeah. Uh, to, to a degree, State of the Nation was a book about nothing, um, sort of written just, you know, following along with three, a group of uh, three friends um, as they um, just navigated their day-to-day existence uh, through a suburb of the Philadelphia area, like Norristown. So these characters um, were uh, ranging from ages 15 to 18 with various levels of, of gender identity and sexuality um, uh, and and kind of 
uh, working class to to impoverished. So some of them, uh, one of the characters who uh, identified as uh, sort of in between the binary was uh, uh, prostituting uh, to help make ends meet for his household as his father had her, I'm sorry, her father had passed away from Legionnaire's disease. And so his mother struggled to make ends meet. And so she uh, sort of did this um, to help with mm -hmm. that. And so it it occurred during the uh, late 70s and early 80s, which during that time, a lot of Black youth in Atlanta, Georgia, were uh, being murdered um, and their bodies were being found um, so there's sort of that question of of the jeopardy of the black body and and the value or lack thereof. Since um, at that time no one had been identified who was doing the murders, and uh, there was some speculation that maybe it was the Ku Klux Klan or the police were involved or, or something like that. And in addition to that, I tied in elements of the Tuskegee experiment where. Um, sharecroppers from the 1940s had been uh, with uh, syphilis had been observed by medical professionals um, to see what the course of that disease would do to their body rather than giving them treatment. Mm -hmm. So that sort of tied into the jeopardy of the black body as well. And while these things were occurring far from the location of the, the youth in this book, they still they still felt that sort of jeopardy to their own bodies um, and that they weren't valued. And so it follows them around while they're trying to make money and, and hanging out uh, just in their day to day basis. Wow. That that sounds like it could be both really heavy. Um, but when you have three friends at that age, it sounds like it could be fun, too. Yeah, it, it it really was a, a fun to to write, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's a fun read too because although there are those very he heavy elements in the background, a closer in focus on these kids, they were really still enjoying their existence and um and growing into their sexuality and just discovering that they were attractive to other people. Um, so those things were were the joy that existed alongside of the terror of, of their existence. Okay. I, I did not know that uh, was happening in Georgia in the, what was it, the 70s and 80s? Yeah. Did they ever? Uh, uh, they eventually caught someone. It was a black uh, gentleman, Wayne. can't remember his last name now. Uh, they eventually caught him, and he's still in prison for that. But in certain black communities, there's been the discussion that he wasn't really a scapegoat, that he wasn't really the person who was responsible for most of these deaths, particularly since uh, Black youth in the area still continue to disappear. Oh, wow. um, so there was always that question, um, which I did, I did bring up as well. Okay. Um, there was also, of course, what wasn't in the media at the time, the possibility that this person, this Wayne person, while he may not have been responsible, may have been grooming uh, young boys, um, paying them for, you know, sex and saying he was a record producer. So there's sort of that thing which tied into 
the youth in this book, you know, selling themselves to adults and whether that sort of existence yeah. jeopardized their bodies. Okay. All right. Wow. I'm going to have to look into that. Um, that sounds. Yeah. It's, it's very riveting. Yeah. There are lots of podcasts and TV shows now about that. Really? Okay. Yeah. Right, great. Yeah. Thanks for enlightening me. Um, so, you know, uh, I was reading, um, I've, well, I've not read uh, State of the Nation yet. Um, I was reading about it and um, the dialogue in State of the Nation has been really highly praised for being funny and for being authentic. Um, so I'm wondering, did you base these characters on people in your life? Um, are they just totally made up or did you, you know, draw from people in your life, in your life to create these characters? Yeah. When I was younger, you know, I knew a lot of very, <laughs> very uh, individualistic people. So I tried to draw on those memories and um, the African-American vernacular. Um, um, I tried to pull from that um, to show that while certain populations do speak with slang um, or, or not the standard English that there's an assumption that they're not intellectual, but yet they can be. So I tried to merge um, that those two things while creating dialogue for them. But it sort of seemed to flow naturally because I was just pulling from memory. Wow, that's cool. That's great. Yeah. So uh, do you see those those characters from your youth as an adult? Uh, not for the most part, you know, I think I, I remember when I was younger, under 21, actually, in Philadelphia had a very vibrant nightlife. Where, so that was know, only a couple years ago, right, David? <laughs> yes, five years ago. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> so, you know, lots of uh, transsexuals and, and, and um, other people existed in these clubs um, where we could go. Um, there were after hours clubs where there was no age restriction. And so you could interact with a large array of people, a vast array of people. And so that's kind of where that came from. Um, but I, I don't, yeah, I never really kept up. They were more people that I knew in passing a lot yeah. and they were a lot older. So we weren't really, you know, connected in that, in a long-term way. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's amazing how, um, in, in my younger days too, we had those after hour clubs that, you know, you used to get into and like, I don't think things like that exist anymore. Um, no, they were, they were awesome. Yeah, they were, <laughs> they really were. Um, yeah. you're, you're a, a Philadelphia guy, right? Yes. Do you remember Sally Starr? I do remember Sally Starr. <laughs> I ran into Sally Starr in one of those places one night <laughs> And the woman, the woman I was with, <laughs> got into a fight with her. Oh no! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! I, I think you know. Oh my God! Everybody was just oh. wasted, totally wasted. But yeah. And was Sally dressed up as Sally Star? You know, she looked very dragged out a lot of times. Oh, she did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I don't know who came first. Her or Dolly Parton, but <laughs> they they kind of resemble each other to, in my mind anyway. I don't know from what I remember, yeah. you know. Yeah. 
I need to know now what the fight was about. Was it over you? Oh, Did you cause it? <laughs> I, I, I hope not. You know, I don't even recall. Like, that's a really good question. <laughs> I don't even recall. Um, I'm thinking it was it was at the bathroom door, like the ladies' room door. So I'm thinking it had something to do with, you know, getting in line or something. I don't know. I don't know. What club was this? It was a club in Allentown. Uh, uh, yeah. I can't think of the name of it. Yeah. One of those. I remember Wild Cherry it was an after-hours club in Philadelphia where there was no alcohol sold. Yeah. So everybody could get in. There was there was a room where they showed movies, a room where there was just dancing, a room where that was called the Snake Pit, where they showed <laughs> where they showed X-rated movies, and who knows what what went on in there. Yeah. I never went in that one, mind you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it was a great space. Oh my goodness! I know all those places. Like they just don't even exist anymore. Even like just, yeah. uh, you know, gay. Even speakeasies are gone, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. There used to be clubs specifically, you know, for gay women. Yeah, they they just totally disappeared. Yeah, um, and it's a really big loss in my opinion. Yeah, social media can't replace that. No, so you're you're right. You're right. And even like just the the regular gay uh, gay dance clubs are are all closing down. There are so many. Yeah. like you know, like the Raven is that still open? I don't think so. I I'm don't not either. Sure. Uh, I so. And what was the one down the street from that uh, cart cartwheel? Yeah, they're they, they're closed. They're closed. Yeah. 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 I think there's still one up in that area. Yeah. Or at least it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. But Sisters most is of gone. them closed down. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all thing of past. <laughs> it's unfortunate, you know. It is. Yeah. Because those were the places of socializing. Um, and for me, you know, just going to a place where you knew you were not alone. And even the, the clubs that are here now, they've been co-opted and a lot. I guess that was the goal, mainstreamed. And so it's not just a, a gay audience, but something is also lost with being mainstreamed. I agree. I agree. There's pros and cons to, to both sides of that, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, there really is. It is it is a loss in that, you know, it's um it, it's not a a place to go just like a, a knowingly safe place anymore. Um right. but, you know, it, it's you know, interesting that it's uh every everyone it's not exclusive. It's so inclusive. Um which is really what yeah. what the goal is, but you know, still. And it now ha they have dress codes. What is this? You're not supposed <laughs> to have a dress code when you're LGBTQ. No, you're supposed to be able to go in your underwear and your bra. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, I did not know about the dress codes. <laughs> that is not a good thing. No. Yeah. So um, so. Back to uh, state of the nation, or back to just you know how you write. Like you've you've been described as a writer who explores the intersectionality of race, disability, and class. And how did you decide upon these themes and and to kind of weave them together? I think that I think that just comes from you know my existence and um, how I live my life. So that 
it's imbued in in my writing for the most part. Um, and maybe also comes with, you know, getting a little older. When I was younger, I would write more of what I read. And a lot of times I read romance novels in my youth. So those were sorts the sorts of things that I wrote then. But this is now trying to um, uh, leave a mark about marginalized people um, because I don't see a lot of books that focus on marginalized people. Mm -hmm. So I try to do that and, and also show that they, that we are just like the general population in most aspects. We still, we love, we hurt, we want to provide for the people that we care about. And those things are common for all readers. Yeah. Yep. We bleed. Right. right. Yeah. Oh. So, um, you have two other published novels um, in addition to State of the Nation, right? So the first, the the next one I think is Blind, A Blind Eye. Yes. Um, and that was also selected um, as uh, an, for an award um, as the best gay fiction um, at the Rainbow Awards. Yes. Yeah. So um, tell us about that novel. Um, a Blind Eye uh, looks at um, same-sex domestic abuse and stalking. Mm. Uh, there is a character in there named Babe who is attempting to um, break up with his boyfriend who does not want to be broken up with. Oh. So it's sort of following him as he navigates um, trying to break free from that relationship. Um, and the boyfriend is also uh, attempting to hire someone to taking a contract out on his life. So it sounds a little bit pot boilerish because one of my, another one of my um, uh, desires is to sort of merge like uh, the, the beach, the beach read books, you yeah. know, like Jacqueline, Suzanne and um, Harold Robbins, those sorts of things to merge that with literary um, so I, I attempt to do that with a blind eye. Okay. Um, it also focuses on uh, a mother, Elise, who is is uh, white, who has a biracial child. Elise is attempting to pass herself off as African-American so that her child's um, existence won't be as problematic to um, people around them. Mm -hmm. And her, her child is has Prader-Willi syndrome, which is um, a disorder where an individual has a voracious appetite to the point that they would literally eat themselves to death. Oh. So it's focusing on um, the two of them as they become homeless and are struggling to find um, a new place to land. Um, and so they come into contact with Babe, who is um, renting out an apartment. <clears throat> And so the child, Reuben, then forms a, a relationship or a bond with Babe um, because of them both being Black. And so Reuben can then sort of see himself in Babe and form his identity and, and sort of relate to someone having the same uh, race as he does. Wow. That's another heavy-duty subject matter, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's fun as well. I, I there are uh, 
it seems that most of the fun for my book seem to come from the trans characters, but there's there are trans characters in um, A Blind Eye who who take us on this sort of odyssey where they're going into the city to buy drugs or to go to a Diana Ross concert and they take, you know, these kids into the city with them. Um, and so these children sort of see a vast array of humankind in, in these outings and learn a lot about um, the world through these characters who, while they're doing illicit things in these odysseys, are still protecting the, the children. Okay. Wow. So um, would you say, like, A Blind Eye and State of the Nation, would those be appropriate for a young adult population? That's a difficult question that I've been asked before. Okay. okay. <laughs> I've, all, I've, been, I've been asked to present um, the book at a couple of private schools for uh, junior high. And um, my my boss actually at work asked if it was appropriate for her 14-year-old daughter. It's hard to say. The, the, the content is sobering. But I also remember, you know, when I was 14, I was reading my mom's books. I was reading East of Eden and yeah. Gone with the Wind and The Lonely Lady. So, I mean, I, I know I read yeah. those sorts of things, but I, I can't for myself say whether it's appropriate. Yeah. I wouldn't call it young adult, though. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, somehow I got a hold of a va Valley of the Dolls. Do you remember that one? Absolutely. One of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was young. God. Yeah. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have been reading that. But That's what I'm thinking. I, I think I was like 14 when I read that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure. Yeah. We We sometimes don't give kids enough credit for maturity. So it's hard to say. It is true. Yeah. I, I expect that, you know, there would be some young adults who would, you know, embrace it, get it, love it. And then yeah. uh, some would, you know, maybe just giggle at some parts or something, you know? Well, you're right. And maybe the bigger question is probably if their parents find out they're reading it, how are they going to react? Because we think now children are watching, what's the television show? Uh, Euphoria? Is that what it's called? Oh, uh, there, yeah, there is one. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's pretty, uh, the content is spectacular, but I'm wondering how parents feel about those sorts of things. So if kids are exposed to that, this, these books are probably a, a walk in the park. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm not familiar with the content of Euphoria. I'll have to check that out too. I, uh... Well, yeah, it's following around people with varying uh, gender identities. Um, and they're coming to terms with those identities as well as their sexuality. Very heady stuff. Wow. Is that on what network? I think is that's on? H HBO. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no, not familiar with that one. I, I stick to my British crime stories. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, and then let's talk about your third novel, which is Unlawful Disorder, right? Mm -hmm. And yes. so what is this book about? Um, Unlawful Disorder is sort of a love story. It, it is, it's following uh, an individual with um, a bipolar disorder 
who's trying to navigate through the social service system, but since he is uh, African-American male um, who also has a gambling problem. And so he, um, he exchanges sex for money so that he can feed his gambling problem. Mm -hmm. But he gets picked up by the police for that. So instead of being uh, in treatment for his mental health struggles, he is incarcerated. And so he meets an older, an older man named Eden, who is trying to help him navigate into the treatment that would be helpful for him rather than being caught up in the prison industrial complex. So it's following them as they're getting to learn one another and also trying to learn how to navigate that world. Wow. Another heavy duty subject. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So what kind of research did you have to do for, for unlawful disorder? Well, I, um, I work in the behavioral health field, um, okay. which, you know, so <laughs> that's how we met. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, I, I'm familiar with, you know, these stories. I've also worked, you know, in the mental health and the, um, um, differently abled um, fields mm-hmm. for well over 20 years. So, um, yeah, I, I've known a lot of different people who've had various challenges. Yeah. Yeah. So those voices all sort of come and speak to me when I'm, I'm creating that sort of uh, story. Okay. So, um, your other career outside of writing does seem to influence, uh, what you're writing about. It does. It does. And I also, I, I, when I'm doing it, I'm hoping that I'm, doing justice to the people you know that i'm writing about that that came into play when i was writing about the child with um prater willie syndrome i didn't want to make it into a caricature i wanted to do these people justice Mm -hmm. especially since i know there are very few um books that focus on that population especially for with fiction Mm -hmm. um but i wanted it to read true and i hope i've done that oh i'm sure you have knowing you and and how precise and exact you are, I'm sure you did. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, David, how old were you when you started writing? Uh, probably uh, in my teens, probably 12. I know, you know, I used to doodle and make comic books when I was a kid. And uh, even in high school, I would write, like, chapters of uh, novels and then pass it along to the kids in my homeroom and they'd pass it to one another and then I'd write another installment the next week. So I've, I've done it, you know, in that way for most of my life. Wow. That's so cool. And, and your classmates liked your work and wanted They more. said it was depressing as hell, but they still, <laughs> they still liked it. <laughs> so yes, the topics were somber even then. <laughs> wow. How about that? Would you would you say in general you're more of uh, a sober person than a kind of fly by the seat of your pants kind of guy? I think I mix both, okay. you know. Yeah. But I I do think I'm probably in a group of friends I'm probably the voice of reason, which is probably why 
I surround myself with people who are the opposite of that okay. so that we can have fun. But then I try to talk them off of the ledge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what about you? What sort are you? Oh, boy. Um, I can be both also. I think um, yeah. it depends on who I'm with. Right. Yeah. Um, if, Same here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I'm with people who, you know, need a little livening up, I can do that. If I need someone yeah. to just, you know, be the voice of reason or bring somebody down to earth, I can do that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've always had the acerbic sense of humor. So I think that that factors into the dialogue when it's being called uh, snappy. Um, that's probably coming up at that time. Ah, okay. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, let me ask you this. So you've been writing since you're 12. That's a, you know, it's quite a while and a couple of years. And, right, uh, <laughs> and so have you noticed like when you're writing, does it, does it energize you or does it seem to exhaust you? Uh, it energizes me when I'm doing it. Yeah. But I do still need to motivate myself to do it because so many other things, you know, are going on when you're trying to live your life and survive. Um, so it's just getting in front of the, you know, computer and writing. Then I'm in my zone, <clears throat> but I just have to stay focused on doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. That 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 describes me exactly, too. Like, yeah, yeah like uh, I am just like, uh, I swear to my, my wife always says I'm ADHD. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, I, you know, I have to kind of be corralled and penned yeah. in to just sit there and, and do this. Otherwise, you know, I find a bazillion things to do. Um, right. But when I'm doing it, it's like, oh, cool. Yeah. You know. Right. Yeah. So. so how long have you been uh, writing or how long have you wanted to write? Um, I think I've been writing for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wrote as a kid. Um, mm. and then I, I stopped, um, and worked on some other developmental activities. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, um, I've probably, I, I want to, say it was around 2009 um i met i met radcliffe and uh she was like yeah you could do this you know why can't you and uh um really encouraged me to go for it so i just started writing again yeah that's great yeah no. are you are you currently working on anything david do you have any work in progress I guess it depends on how you define it. I okay. <laughs> I started something and then I think I just stopped like a month ago. But I was talking to um, my a mentor today who was telling me that I need to to do it every day, which is what I usually do. I try to write three pages a day. It doesn't matter if it's good or it's bad. What's most important is that you write and get it out there. Um, get it finished because then you have a direction to go in once you're, it's completed. So I, I do have uh, a topic. It's sort of a continuation of a finished piece that I'm currently shopping around. And perhaps if I get, you know, 
some approval on the piece being shopped around, it would motivate me to continue the continuation. Yeah. Yeah, that's good advice just to to sit down and, and write every day, you know? Um, yeah. It's it's a craft and and you don't right. you don't uh improve your skills unless you work at your skills, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's like playing basketball, like you you're not going to be a better dribbler by sitting on the bench, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's it it's therapeutic too, even if you know it's if you're working on fiction, I still find it to be therapeutic. Yeah. Um so I think it's a good goal to do some writing every day, no matter what the volume is. Yeah, or what kind of writing it is, right? Yeah. 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 If you're you know, whether you're working toward a novel or, you know, just journaling is is right. good exercise. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, David, that's about all the time we have for today. Um, but I'm just wondering if you have any parting words for our listeners. Um, I'd like to thank all of your listeners and ask them to, you know, run out and buy one of these books. Um, and either buy or go to your library. It's great to use our libraries. I've just, you know, reestablished the childhood bond I had with my libraries. I'd stopped doing it and was buying everything. And then I realized, why Why am I doing that when our libraries need our energies as well? Yeah. So I'd say do that. And if any of you are writers, just write. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. And, and where would people find your books? Where would they go? They can go to barnesandnoble.com or to Amazon, or preferable to that is if you go to one of your bookstores, your independent bookstores, and ask specifically for me, David Jackson Ambrose, um, um, they can get the book in for you. Awesome. That's great. All right. Thank you, David. Um, and if our listeners wanted to get a hold of you, contact you, is there, uh, do you have like a, uh, Instagram account or Facebook, social media, anything, or uh, how would they we got a website? You? Okay. A website that's www.davidjacksonambrose.com. It could reach me there or uh, Twitter is now X, right? Mm, <laughs> but yeah. I, my uh, handle is uh, uh, DJAC. DJAC. Okay. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much, David, for being on the show. Um, it has been a pleasure talking with you, um, and I am really eager to read State of the Nation, um, and all of them, really. Um, but thanks again. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and uh, I'm Anita Kelly, and we were just talking with David Jackson Ambrose. So thanks for joining. Let's talk about books, baby. And until next time, may your journey be lighthearted, peace be plenty. And be safe, folks.